So look, I think we've got a couple of immediate presenting problems as we come to this passage. Um, the first of which is an intellectual one. Um, it's, just, it's just a hard passage to understand. Did you find that as you were following along? All this talk of Beelzebub, a strong man, impure spirits, one spirit coming out of someone, later on seven of them coming back. Um, there are these Old Testament references to the Queen of the South, the men of Nineveh. Um, and look, if you're coming to this passage for the first time, you might be thinking like, what on earth is going on here? I don't really just even understand what, what's happening here. So that's the first thing. The second thing is an emotional problem. This is not just a hard passage to understand. This is a really hard-hitting passage. What did you make of of some of the words and some of the language that Jesus uses here? Um, Let me remind you of just a few of them. Whoever is not with me is against me. This is a wicked generation. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment and condemn them. Woe to you Pharisees, you foolish people. You are like unmarked graves. I mean, if we're coming to church this afternoon with a view of Jesus that's merely sort of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know, he wouldn't say boo to a goose, this is going to come as something of a shock to us. And particularly in in an area we live in now of like openness and tolerance and you've got your beliefs and I've got mine and don't you dare say that, you know, mine might be wrong, mine are right and yours are wrong. Like, Jesus is very un-PC here. Intellectually difficult, emotionally hard. So what do we do with a passage like this? Where do we start? How do we get into it? I'm going to suggest to you that the main theme which ties verses 14 to 54 together of this chapter is the theme of rejecting Jesus and the folly of rejecting Jesus. Okay? So we see it splits into three parts. Jesus drives out a demon, verses 14 to 28, but the people attribute it to the devil. Then we get Jesus giving the sign of Jonah, the one sign everyone needs to believe, verses 29 to 36, but the people refuse and refuse to repent. And then Jesus warns the Pharisees and teachers of the law in verses 37 to 54 of seeking a righteousness apart from him, but they refuse to listen. Rejection, rejection, rejection. And in each case, with devastating consequences. And this is vital for all of us to see. Whether you're someone here looking into Christian things, great to have you here. We always have people looking into the claims of Jesus Christ. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'll look into it, but does it really matter whether I, I do make a decision to believe in him or not? This passage is going to give a very clear answer to that. And whether we've been following Jesus for, for many, many years, it can be demoralizing when we see so much rejection of him around us. When we see it time and time again, we can begin to wonder, is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with Jesus? Am I just having the wall pulled over my eyes? Am I just more gullible than other people? Here is a passage to show you, as it exposes the rejection of people back then and people today, and give the reasons for it, and how poor those reasons are, here is an encouragement to you that following Jesus Christ, hearing his word, obeying him day in, day out, is the most wisest thing any human being can do. Okay, so that's where we're going. Three types of rejection. The first is this, an illogical one in verses 14 to 28. For verse 14, let me read that to you. We're on page 1043. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, 
the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. Part, some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. So here is Jesus. He does this amazing miracle, right? Here's a mute man, never been able to speak. And suddenly, Jesus performs this powerful, and he can speak. But instead of attributing this miracle to the power of God, they instead attribute it to the devil. Notice, by the way, that nobody denies the miracle itself. Nobody denies that this mute man who for years has not been able to utter a word can suddenly speak. Such is the power of Jesus Christ. This is really quite significant. I mean, if there's any hint of sleight of hand, trickery, illusion, they would raise their objections immediately. By Houdini, the prince of illusions, he's driving out these... You know, there's none of that whatsoever. There's no denial of the miracle itself. And all that they resort to is saying, uh, well, this power must be of the devil. So is it? Is Jesus' power demonic? That's the accusation of verse 15. Let me just say at this point, some of you might be thinking, oh my goodness, demons, demon possession, driving out demons, really, in this day and age? Back then, they all believed that, right? Pre-scientific era. But nowadays, we know that conditions like this, it can all be answered physiologically, psychologically. Might be helpful just to point out that throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus very clearly differentiates between people who are um, sad, people who are sick, people who are sinful, people who are demon-possessed. Jesus never lumps them all together. Jesus Christ has a very nuanced understanding of evil. Sometimes natural explanations, sometimes supernatural, sometimes a combination. And he knows it's really important that we understand that today. A former bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle, said this about the role of demons in Western society today. Do we suppose, because bodily possession by Satan is not so glaringly manifest as it once was, that the great enemy is less active in doing mischief than he used to be? If we think so, we have much to learn. Do we suppose that there's no such thing as the influence of a dumb devil in the present day? If we do, we had better think again. What shall we say of those who never speak to God, who never use their tongues in prayer and praise? What shall we say in a word of those who can speak to everyone but God? What can we say but that Satan has despoiled them of the truest use of a tongue? Now, please do grab me after if you want to talk more about demons and their role today. And But the most compelling evidence for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ for the existence of the devil and demons is Jesus' response in, the, in, these work, in this, this passage because he not only does he not deny the existence of the, of the devil, he is saying that it's absolutely ludicrous and ridiculous to attribute his power to the devil. So in verses 17 to 18, if you glance down there, Jesus says, if Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I mean, it's just ridiculous, right? Jesus is doing good here. He's driving out demons. If it's by the power of the devil, that's like the devil committing suicide. Like, his kingdom cannot stand. In verse 19, Jesus says, even your own followers drive out demons. You don't call them evil, so why are you calling me evil? I'm doing good here. 
No, says Jesus, verses 20 to 22, turning it back at them, a more logical understanding is that I'm driving out demons by the finger of God, and actually the kingdom of God has come upon you. I am like a strong man, far stronger than the devil, far stronger than any evil in this world, and I will drive it all out. And then Jesus turns it up even more in verses 23 to 28 by saying, it is vital you recognize this about me because whoever is not with me is against me. So there's no sitting on the fence with Jesus. There's no neutral ground. You're either with him, believing his power is from God, or you're against him. And then Jesus gives this very harrowing image of what happens to those who don't believe him with these seven spirits returning, perhaps referencing the man who's just had the demon driven out, and if he doesn't repent and believe in Jesus, it's going to get a lot worse for him. The final condition of that person is worse than the first. So do you see here the folly of rejecting Jesus' power? the folly of attributing such good to such evil. And by rejecting Jesus, people will actually make it a lot worse for themselves. Now I hope that is an encouragement to us as followers of Jesus to see what sort of excuses the people had to come up with to deny the power and authority of Jesus. He must be of the devil. It is completely illogical. I hope you take encouragement from the fact that not even Jesus' fiercest critics as opponents deny the miracle itself. They can't. And so for those people who reject Jesus' power today, they're not just rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting his opponents back then too. Illogical. And I hope this is a reminder also to all of us of the devastating consequences of rejecting Jesus' power. Because it leaves us open to a demonic power and things ending up far worse than what they were before. Are you for Jesus or are you against him? If you're for him, praise the Lord. If you're against him, be warned. The illogical rejection of Jesus. Let's move on secondly to the unrepentant rejection of Jesus in verse 29 to 36. Let me read from verse 29. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Now, Jesus is not saying here that asking for a sign is necessarily wrong, um, that it is wrong to ask for evidence into the person of Jesus. Absolutely not. The very definition of biblical faith is faith founded upon evidence and reason and objective facts. And actually, throughout Luke's gospel so far, what's Jesus been doing? He's feeding the 5,000, calming the storm, walking on water, even raising a little girl from the dead. What's he just done? Driven out of a demon. Okay, so science and evidence, plenty of them. The issue here that Jesus is picking up on is that despite all these signs and all these evidence to his divinity, for him being the son of God, these people are refusing to repent 
and continuing to ask for more signs, but they're not really asking for signs because we've been told that they're just trying to test him. And so to these sort of people who are not taking the signs seriously, not just trying to test Jesus, he says, look, there's only one sign that will be given to you, and that's the sign of Jonah. Which begs the question, what's the sign of Jonah? Look at what verse 32 says. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is again exposing the folly of rejecting him, of not repenting at his preaching. Even Nineveh, if you're familiar with the Old Testament book of Jonah, even Nineveh, which is described for all of its evil and wickedness, it was a Gentile city. Even Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. Jonah, a disobedient prophet. Jonah, who only spoke to them eight words, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. And the whole city repented. And Jesus saying, now someone greater than he is here, the greatest prophet of all. Jesus Christ, fully human, fully divine, the Son of God, whose every word that comes out of his mouth is the very speech of God, the full revelation of God himself. And still, people won't listen to him and won't repent. I remember the professor of philosophy and law at New York University, Thomas Nagel, in his book, The Last Word, describing his atheism like this. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. Hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Which I thought was really honest. Because here he is saying that behind his atheism is not, and lack of belief in God, it's not fundamentally a a lack of evidence, a lack of signs, but but a lack of fundamental desire. He does not want there to be a God who's in charge of his life. He doesn't want there to be a universe where God is there and despite all his goodness and love and grace and mercy, calls people, every person, to repent of their sin and trust in him. The refusal to repent, despite all the sign, all the evidence of creation itself, of our consciences, of beauty, love, and truth, ultimately of the person of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. So don't be put off when people say, where's the evidence for God? Show me, show me. I need more, more evidence, more of it. Sign in the sky, some sort of dream, whatever it is. Chances are, if you've been talking about Jesus, you've been pointing them to his life and death and resurrection, his teaching, then there is something deeper going on here. And deep down, a fundamental desire, for whatever reason, not wanting God to be there and not wanting a universe like that. I've often found in my own personal evangelism showing faith with Jesus, often when people have made the decision to, to not follow him, very, very rarely has it been because of a lack of 
evidence or, or signs or it's been something in their life that they've not wanted to let go of. Often in an area of a relationship. Not wanted to repent of it. They actually found Jesus really quite compelling and attractive. We're happily reading the Bible. You know, the main tenets of the Christian faith of his life, his death, his resurrection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the evidence was there. But they didn't want to repent. If you're someone here looking into Christian things, look, I don't know how this teaching's tracking with you right now or not. You think, well, I don't know. Need more evidence? Or maybe there is some part of your life which you're thinking, yeah, I'm not, I'm not letting Jesus have that. And it's holding you back. And if that's you, I just want to say that Jesus Christ is the one person in the universe who you can trust with every single part of your life. He drives out evil, as we've just seen, as easily as that. We haven't had time to look into verses 33 to 36 with this lamp and the eyes and the light of your body. He's just saying, you look at you, you, have, you come to the light of life, you will be full of light yourself. And Jesus will just drive out all the darkness. You have nothing to fear from him. Come to him, trust him, repent, believe. Don't be like this unrepentant generation which ended up facing condemnation. And for those of us here who call ourselves Christian, well, let's make sure we keep listening to the preaching of Jesus, keep repenting, keep believing. The unrepentant rejection of Jesus. Thirdly and finally, in verses 37 to 54, we see this fierce opposition to Jesus. So just look at verse 53. This is over the page. This is where our passage ends. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Now bear in mind, this is really important, these are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Okay, the Jewish religious leaders of the, of the day, the religious establishment. This, if you like, should be the one group of people who recognize the Christ and the Messiah when he arrives. It's what the whole of the Old Testament was pointing forward to. They studied it day in, day out. Here is Jesus right before them, driving out a demon, giving them the sign of Jonah in his preaching. Do they receive him? Praise the Lord, he's here. I repent and believe. They fiercely oppose him. Why? And in these verses we see it's because they cannot stand having their self-righteousness pointed out by Jesus. Just look at how Jesus describes them in verses 39 to 41. Then the Lord said to him, the Pharisee who'd invited Jesus to his meal and was picking Jesus up for not washing before the meal. The Lord said to him, now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Now look, this is Jesus speaking here. I mean, talk about calling a spade a spade. To the Pharisees, to the te- these highly respected people, you have got it all wrong. A relationship with God, you've got completely inside out. You're focusing it all on the externals. 
these rules and regulations and looking good in front of others and loving your seats in the synagogue and thinking you can keep the law and show others you're keeping it where deep inside where it really matters in your heart there is greed and there is wickedness and there is no love of me at all. Absolutely devastating assessment of the religious establishment at the day. Now, really strong language from Jesus, but I want us to see that he says it as a warning so that the Pharisees and the cheats of the law would do something about it, that would see the errors of their way and would repent. That is actually the point of these woes, these six woes. Judgment is coming if you don't repent. No, please do repent. Woe in the Greek, it's ooai. It's like a cry of an eagle. He says it six times, three to the Pharisees, three to the cheats. Ooai, ooai, ooai. Can you imagine it? Six times, warning, warning, warning before it is too late. Woe to you Pharisees, verse 42, because of your scrupulous focus on the parts of the letter of the law and that you neglect the heart of the law, justice and love of God. Woe to you Pharisees, verse 43, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue, so you're making it all about you rather than worship of God. Woe to you, Pharisees, verse 44, because you're like unmarked graves. You are spiritually dead. You're contaminating anyone that comes in contact with you. Now, at this point, one of the teachers of the law chips in, doesn't he? (laughs) Says, you're insulting us also with these words. And Jesus says, well, here are three woes for you as well. Woe to you, verse 46, for burdening people with all these extra rules and regulations you've come up with. But never lift a finger to help. Never point people to the grace and mercy of God. Woe to you, verse 47 to 51, quite a few verses here, but basically say, you're not listening to the prophets either, just like your ancestors who killed them. Woe to you, verse 52, for you have missed, as teachers of the law, you have missed the whole point of the law. Try to seek your own righteousness through your religious external performance, and you are outside the kingdom of God, and you hinder anyone else entering. And you need to repent too. But tragically, they don't. They can't stand having their self-righteousness pointed out by Jesus. Can't stand the thought that they need to repent too, that they've got some inner cleansing that they need that only Jesus can provide. And so what do they do? They oppose him fiercely. We'll see later on in Luke's gospel, they plot to kill Jesus. And they reject the very person who can forgive them, cleanse them, and set them free. Tragic. Now, how does this apply to us today? I want you to know that I have struggled a lot this week to know how to apply the Pharisees and the teach the law to you. Right now, I don't know how best to do this. Some of you, I think, as followers of Jesus, will instinctively think, oh my goodness, look at their self-righteousness. I better make sure there's no self-righteousness in my heart right now. And look, that is very true and good and biblical. And if the Spirit is doing that for you right now, receive it. Receive his word, repent of that self-righteousness, let's not be like them. But these Pharisees and teach the law, A, they are leaders, religious leaders. 
B, they are outside the kingdom of God. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ, you are in the kingdom of God. And so I think the primary application of this is to help us understand why people continue to reject it with such fierce hostility at times. Do you remember how this started this series? This call to come to Jesus and then him sending us out on commission to share Jesus with others and it's going to be difficult and it's going to be lambs amongst wolves. And this is why. Because people cannot stand having their self-righteousness pointed out to them. And as we're showing the message of Jesus, ultimately that is what we're going to have to do. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with someone about the claims of Jesus and suddenly like, the conversation like, blows up. You're having a, what you thought was a really good conversation. You've been very gracious. Your tone was great. Just fine and boom. And you know, you, you get into maybe the heart of the Christian message. You began to talk about the nature of sin and the reality of judgment, the need to, to believe in Jesus, to have your sins forgiven. And suddenly the, you know, the, the temperature in the conscience gets ratcheted up. Maybe there was like an outburst from the other person. How dare you suggest that there is something wrong with me? How dare you suggest that I'm a sinner, that I face judgment, that I'm not good enough for God? I don't know if you've experienced something like that. I was like that, by the way, before I was a Christian. But anyway, someone else experienced it. Jesus wants us to understand why that happens. The fierce opposition as the message of Jesus exposes self-righteousness in the human heart. You know, and for those people who consider themselves very morally good people, those who are very religiously devout, you will see it most in them. We are in a culture at the moment which loves to be right. I'm in the right, you're in the wrong. If you say anything which doesn't fit with what I'm saying, no forgiveness, cancel culture, so for us as Christians to be out, holding out the message of Jesus, it says, look, we're all sinners. None of us is in the right. Don't be surprised if people are insulted. Don't be surprised if there's fierce opposition. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with the message as long as you're gracious and kind with them. But this is the sort of rejection that we can expect. And look, I don't know if one or two here there is some of that strong reaction, rejection, maybe going on in your heart right now. And as you're hearing these words and you're hearing Jesus' words, and maybe you're thinking, what? Me? A sinner? Me? Needing forgiveness? Me? Needing to, how dare you, Mark Jackson? Well, it's not me, it's Jesus. And he's saying it to you as a warning. Not woe to you, judgment's coming. Woe to you, do something about it before it's too late. Jesus come to drive out evil. Jesus come to heal the sick. Jesus come to die on the cross for your sin. He'll take the judgment for you so you can be forgiven by him, have a relationship with God now into eternity. Come to him. Repent before it is too late. So there we have it as we go out on mission in the week ahead whether it's illogical rejection and repentant rejection or fierce rejection. Don't be surprised. Don't be worried. You've not had the wool pulled over your eyes. There's nothing wrong with you, nothing wrong with Jesus. There is nothing more important, more urgent, more wise than following Jesus Christ, hearing his word, obeying it day by day. Let me pray that for us now. Let's pray. Father God, we thank and praise you for the richness of your word. 
Some passages are hard to understand, some passages are hard to stomach, and this is one of them. But we know you give it to us for our spiritual well-being, ultimately for encouragement to, to keep following you amidst all the rejection we see around us. And so I pray, Father, that we would recognize afresh the devastating consequences of rejecting you, that we would not be surprised when we see people rejecting your power, asking for more and more signs, maybe reacting in conversations in a very fierce and hostile way. Help us not to be put off. Help us to appreciate afresh your salvation of us and keep us following Jesus in the week ahead and keep, follow, um, keep holding out at the words of Jesus and sharing him with others too. And we ask it for his name's sake. Amen.